An honorable profession is brought to you by Tech for America, an organization dedicated to providing a platform to solve America's toughest public challenges. For more information, visit t4a.org. That's t, the number four, a.org. We're also supported by opencounter.com. OpenCounter builds tools for local governments to deliver permits and licenses online. Their portals make complex permitting simple, which lowers transaction costs, increases transparency, and empowers economic development. OpenCounter is a vital tool for communities across this nation, including Atlanta, Charlotte, Oakland, Indianapolis, and San Diego. Check out opencounter.com to see what they can do for your community. Welcome to An Honorable Profession, a podcast giving America hope since 2018. I'm your host, Ryan Coonerty. An Honorable Profession is a New Deal Leaders podcast. The New Deal is an organization that supports some of the most thoughtful and innovative voices in American politics. I've been a member of New Deal for years, both when I was mayor of Santa Cruz and now as chair of the Santa Cruz County Board of Supervisors. Check out some of our past episodes with guests like Mayor Pete, Wisconsin Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes, Florida Representative Margaret Good, and more than a dozen amazing leaders at the state and local level. You can find us at newdealleaders.org or wherever podcasts are found. And if you like what you hear, please tell your friends. We're trying to bring sanity to politics in an insane era. We need all the help we can get. We took an honorable profession on the road to Nevada to hear from elected officials there about what's going on in their early caucus state. Today is part two of my interviews. I talked with State Representative Danielle Monroe Moreno. This was in many ways the most personal conversation I've had on this podcast. She talked about her career as a corrections officer, about running for office, and what it's like serving in the first female majority legislature in the history of the United States, and how it changes the conversation. She talked about how her life informs policy. If you need to have your faith restored in democracy, listening to this conversation is a good place to start. Today, we have Nevada Assemblymember Danielle Monroe Moreno, uh, who represents North Las Vegas. And uh, there's many things I'm looking forward to talking to you about today. Nevada is the first female majority legislature in the history of the country. But first, I want to talk about your path into politics. You're a former corrections officer. Yes. Um, and we've had a lot of guests on this show. Uh, we haven't had somebody who's chosen that path, uh, profession, and then gone into public service. Can you tell me about sort of your life growing up and then uh, your experience as a corrections officer and how that got you engaged in politics? Well, my life in politics started um, far much earlier than my career in corrections. I I grew up in a household that was um, community-driven, community-active. My father was a um, retired military from the Air Force. My mom was a small business owner, although she had never graduated high school. She owned her own business. My father, who he had 
some issues after his retirement from the military. So he was always advocating for veteran services and veterans' rights. Um, and he, too, was a small business owner um, after his service in the military. My mother, who had battled cancer at a very early age, was unable to have children of her own. So together, um, they had a house full of children because they were foster parents. At the time, it was called a foster and receiving home. Um, but my, my dad wanted his own baby daughter. Um, my mom wanted a, a daughter or a son. It didn't matter. So the story that's told to me, they looked high and low for a special baby, and they found me. But they never stopped being foster parents. Even after adopting me, they continued being foster parents. And every child that came into our home, it was their home. They were not a foster child. And even if they got to the age where they aged out of the system, you never aged out of our home until you were ready to leave. Our home was their home and my parents were their parents. So although I was the only child they had together, I had a number of siblings who were foster siblings, but I also had um, three sets of godparents. My, my parents were much older when they adopted me. Um, and my father felt it was important that we, or I knew, that people are more alike than they are different. And when we had fa family gatherings, there were people of all different races, colors, and religious backgrounds. So when I got godparents, I got three sets of godparents. I have a, a white set of godparents who are Catholic, a black set of godparents who are Baptist, an interracial set of godparents who actually had different religious beliefs. And my parents felt that was important because if I, if I knew that at an early age, I would be more accepting and appreciative of the differences around me um, and appreciate those differences knowing that together we could do amazing things. I had truly amazing parents, but those parents were always advocating in the community for one thing or another, whether it's at a city council meeting, a county commission meeting, um, marching for one issue or another. And I said that I would grow up and not be like my parents. And I actually became worse than my parents <laughs> because I, I ran for office. Um, when I left home and, and after attending college, I was in the workforce, I realized that there were a lot of things going on with my employer that could be improved upon. And I was very um, vocal in how we can make those improvements. But in doing that, I also got very involved in our the community we lived in with nonprofits serving on boards and um, different things, um, just to make our community more community-minded. Um, and from there, got involved in local politics, serving on our county commission, our, our Central County um, Committee for the Democratic Party, um, and was thought I'd always run for city council, thought that's where I would be since I had been so vocal there. But I had worked with my um, assemblywoman um, in the community for years. Um, we started working together on PTSA. When her term was coming to an end, because there's term limits in the state of Nevada, I was looking for the perfect assembly person to take her spot. And as I'm looking for that person, um, my children and friends said, why isn't that person you? And I'm like, well, you know, I never really thought about running for a statewide office. I always thought I'd be um, at the city level. But in all the work that I did, I realized there has to be a strong relationship between our local elected officials and our state elected officials. So I prayed about it. I prayed long and hard about it. Um, 
was this the right thing for me to do? And in 2009, I took the Emerge Nevada class, but I didn't start my campaigning until 2014 when I knew that that's where I was meant to be. I felt that that was my position and I was going for it. And I felt also that my career in law enforcement, our job was to protect and serve. Um, and I loved which will sound weird as a corrections officer, I love what my job allowed me to do. Not everyone who goes to jail is a bad person. There are people that find themselves in some unusual situations that put them in usual positions, that they may do things that may break the law. And there's some people that go to jail that haven't broken the law but got caught up in a situation. It allowed me that opportunity to get to know people, to help people that found themselves in a situation, maybe get out of it. But there was a day that I was escorting inmates to court and there was a gentleman that I had, that I had had in jail when I worked in Arizona. And he was a grandfather. I now had his son who was in jail, who had visited his dad when I worked in Arizona. But I had his, that son's son. So I had three generations of the same family in jail. And when you talk to them, None of them had graduated high school. Two of them could barely read and write past their own names, and none of them saw a way out. But I felt the way out was education. And um, I knew that there were other officers that worked with me that felt the same way. So we band together, a small group of us, and we started an after-school program that specifically targeted the area where we one of our highest risk areas for young people. Found an apartment complex that was looking for something for young people, um, and they had the room, but they didn't have the programming. I'm no teacher, my children will attest to that. But I felt if we could just do an after-school program to give these children a reason to go to school, someone to help them with their homework, where mom and dad might not be able to because I might have them during the day in jail, then that would give them an opportunity to do something different. Um, so we started it um, with absolutely no money. Um, the owner of the apartment complex, after pleading with him, saw the need in his own apartment complex and, and offered me a deal that I could not resist for rent. I said, I have no money. I have an idea. I'm not a teacher. But I have a family, three generations of a family in my jail right now. We need to do something to change that. So he agreed to rent us a space with a, a year's lease with a dollar a month for our lease. I couldn't beat that. I partnered with community groups and, and different businesses in the area because I realized a lot of my kids that were going to the after school program didn't have dinner at night the way that my children did. So my husband and I went to opposite ends of the work week so that someone could always be there. We planned whatever meal we were gonna have at home. We cooked that meal there so we could Make sure that every kid had a meal when their tummies were full when they went to sleep. They had someone that helped them with their homework. But they also learned how to cook. We made them help us in the kitchen so that they would learn how to cook. When we weren't there anymore, they had a skill that they could leave with. But then we partnered with adult education with the Clark County School District, and adult education came in. So they had a program for mom and dad, so mom and dad could work on getting their GED and not be away from their children. If they worked all day, you don't want to leave again. But this gave an opportunity for the family to come together. The kids get the homework help that they needed. Mom and dad could get their GED 
that they needed, and we could all eat together as this community family. So I guess wow. that's how I got involved. And how, uh, <laughs> how long did you do that program for? We did that program for two and a half years, and the only reason we stopped, um, the apartment complex was sold, and the new owners were not as appreciative as the former owners, and we just could not afford the commercial rate for rent that he was charging, but we were able to get every child that was in our program in another program, whether it was the Girls and Boys Club or the YMCA, but another program, so we did not leave them. Wow. That is um, that is an extraordinary story, and so I want to talk a little bit about the Emerge program uh, because there may be listeners out there right now who are saying to themselves, "Maybe I could run for office," or people are talking to me to run for office, but it all seems so overwhelming, so scary. Um, tell me about how the Emerge program worked for you and. Uh, and it took you, it sounds like it took five years, uh, before, uh, before you sort of put it into action, but, um, walk me through that, just that, the change of mindset it took to, to run for office and to, to be trained up. The Emerge program was phenomenal. There were things I thought, although I had been involved in politics, um, as a volunteer, as a canvasser, as a phone banker for other campaigns, I think my children have all worked campaigns since they were for someone in a stroller. So I thought I knew it all until I took the Emerge program. And I realized I didn't know it all. Um, I, I can ask for money for any nonprofit and it, I have no problem doing it. It was a, a change and an adjustment to ask someone to contribute to me. Um, because I thought you're just giving me money. Not, I didn't go into the program understanding that a contribution to my campaign is actually an investment in my community, not just in me. That was one thing that I learned in Emerge. But I, as a woman, and I don't know if men, because I'm not a man, if they go through this, I had three daughters um, that I already took a lot of time away from with my community work, although I took my family with me to everything, that was still them sharing with me with someone else. I felt guilty even wanting to go into politics as an elected official because I knew I'd be taking even more time away from my children. Um, but I also knew it had to, when, when you run, whoever you are, male or female, what I, the other thing I learned in Emerge, when you run, your family runs. So to make sure they're okay with what may happen during a campaign. Um, because not everyone's going to run their campaign the way you hope that they do and just on what their values and principles are. Um, so looking deep in my own history, um, Googling myself to see what was out there um, was part of our class. I was kind of amazed at everything that's out there um, that people can find out. Nothing that I was embarrassed about, but just surprised at how much yeah. information is actually there. But putting together a team, um, a, you know, trusting people, that's a big thing. Um, but a winning team, people who are going to be honest with you. I, you don't want people that are going to be yes folks. You want people who are going to be honest, brutally honest, and always have your back. Um, so I built that team, and Emerge was a sisterhood. It's um, not just the Nevada 
emerge. It's a nationwide sisterhood that we're there for each other. But making sure that I was prepared, knowing how to, you know, the simplest thing, open that political bank account, because it's different from your personal account. Um, making sure you have all your campaign finance um, things in order and reporting on time. So there was a lot. Um, putting together a walk card and not letting someone else tell you what your message is. You develop what that message is, and it has to be authentically you um, and not that cookie-cutter campaign. And um, As a black woman, there were people who said I didn't look like my district and maybe I should not be the one that ran. And I'm like, well, what does my district look like? Uh, you're not saying they're all they're not all women I get that they're not all black no but neither is my family we're black white Hispanic Native American um, Asian American we're straight we're gay um, and and Jewish my family is just about everything I said so I, I I think I'm a really good representation of the district but although for some women it, it takes seven times to ask them it didn't take the seven times to ask me. It just took me finding the best time for me and my family. And that's what I did learn in Emerge, to do it in my own term. But also, not everyone's meant to run for office. It's just a fact. But the lessons learned in Emerge make great finance directors field organizers, campaign managers, communications directors. So it's so much more than just getting women ready to run. It's actually getting women ready to run campaigns in general in all different areas. And that effort in the state of Nevada has led to historic results. Um, so the legislature uh, went from being a Republican legislature to a Democratic legislature and a legislature that's majority women. Um, and in the articles you read about it, uh, Carson City um, has a whole different set of issues that it's looking at and talking about. Um, can you talk about that experience of seeing the, the state legislature change and, and represent a, a different set of voices? It's, it's been a process. Our speaker, um, Jason Frierson, is absolutely amazing. I've known Jason for, or Speaker Frierson, for about, ooh, I want to say 15 to 20 years. He was a man that knew that for the conversation to change, the people at the table had to change. So he was very intentional and actively involved in finding quality and qualified candidates, both male and female, but extremely active in finding more female voices and a diverse set of female voices coming in. And he kind of led the charge as kind of, um, he's not a woman, but I guess he's our strongest ally. Um, and encouraging people, what are those issues that are important to you, but not just important to you, because when you when you serve, you're, it's not about you, or it's not supposed to be about you, it's the community that you serve. Um, so yeah, there were issues that, had my husband been the one serving, he probably wouldn't have thought of. But as a woman, we see things a little bit different from a different set of lenses. And having that conversation, because my first um, term, we were not the female majority. We were a Democratic majority, but not a female majority. Second, 
session coming back, having a female majority, you could now have those conversations that may have made um, my male colleagues blush. Um, but we could have those open conversations. Or like, you've had them at your dinner table with your daughters and your wives. Now we just need to have them at the political table. And give me an example of a different conversation that happened uh, because cause you were there. Oh, well, we started the conversation on the pink tax. And someone said, well, I don't see why that's important. I said, okay, well, you know, there's things that women get charged a tax for that we have no control over. It's the way God made us that men don't have a tax for. And when you add that up, it comes out of our household budgets. Are we being penalized for being women? And my male counterparts had never thought about that. Even one of my Republican male counterparts, and he had all daughters, and he said, you know, I never thought about that. So he said, I just want you to go to the store, something you've probably never done before. I'm not going to ask you to buy it, but walk down the aisle for sanitary napkins and tampons and look at the cost of those and know that each one of your daughters are going to have that cycle once a month. You have three daughters. So you're going to be paying for that three times. They're going to be in your house probably from 12 to 19. You're the one paying for that. Add that up and how much those taxes are. And you tell me, Dad, is that fair? <laughs> and he did it. He came around? He did it. He said, oh, my goodness, I didn't realize how much that is. I said, now, you don't get taxed for some other things that you may use, but it's a choice that you use those. We don't have a choice. So it was just opening that door for different conversations. Um, even the, the Planned Parenthood question. Um, I had a gentleman say, well, women just go there for abortions. And I said, well, I beg to differ. And he said, well, you're, you had a job and, and you had insurance. And I said, I did, but there, that wasn't always my story. When I was attending Arizona State University, I didn't have the insurance that I have now. So when I needed birth control, that's where I went. But when I felt sick and I wasn't sure what it was, that's also where I went. And that's where my college roommates went before going to a doctor. So there was so many other services that they provided to me and to the other women around me that had absolutely nothing to do with abortion or birth control. But if you take that tool away, then where are those women going to go that do not have insurance or maybe have insurance but cannot afford that deductible that they're being charged? So yeah, different conversations, different conversations. And uh, you just finished a legislative session. Uh, and as you think about a uh, future legislative session, are there are there going to be goals or uh, new issues that you think this female majority uh, are going to be able to push and lead, you know, sort of both for the for Nevadans, but also for all the states, because Nevada is now a leader? You know what? Every issue is a family issue. Just because there's more women at the table doesn't change the, the issues within the community. The women that are at our table are doctors, lawyers, small business owners, corrections officers, um, waitresses, um, people from the culinary industry. It's bringing those collective voices together doesn't bring about different issues at the table, just knowing that we have a voice in all the issues that are there. Education, it's a huge topic, but that's both men and women. 
small business because we have a number of small business owners that are women serving in our legislatures, making sure that we're doing the right things for our small businesses so that they can start in our state, but also grow. But healthcare, it's a huge issue. Healthcare, um, preschool, um, making sure that every child in our state has an equal foot to, to start um, in the education because that um, statistics has shown that those that have a preschool education do so much better long range in life. Um, I don't know, there's just so many issues that aren't just female issues, they're just family issues that impact our families. And a whole different set of issues that are also family issues, um, but you're taking a unique leadership role and because of your experience as a corrections officer, um, you had a bill to ban the use of private prisons. Yes. Uh, you also had a, you've also had a series of bills to reform like the juvenile justice system to offer some alternatives similar to the ones that that sort of you would you had piloted uh, as a as a private citizen how are those going uh, and how how do you think that Democrats you know as we as we as you as candidates from across the country and activists from across the country listen to this how can Democrats talk about public safety and uh, but prison reform and juvenile justice reform in a way that that resonates with both the realities in the jail that, that you saw, um, but then also uh, the general public. Wow. So the private prisons bill, I championed my first session, um, put on my tennis shoes and walked the halls and met with every legislator that was going to vote on that bill. I didn't care what side of the aisle they were on, explained to them why this was important to our state. We had had private prisons here in the past and we had negative results that cost us, um, not just morally, but it had a physical cost for the state. And working in the prison or working in um, the county and city jails saw things that we could do that improve what we were doing, but as long as there was a profit margin attached to who's in jail, then there's an incentive to put people in jail. The incentive should be on rehabilitation. The incentive should be on finding out why people are going to jail. What are those outside influences that are causing people to commit a crime or to be in a situation that a crime is committed? And that's where the money should be spent on the front end, whether it is education, whether it is healthcare, or whether it is a family like the one I spoke of earlier that knew no other life other than this life of crime because that's what they were born into and saw no other way out. We have a responsibility as a community to make sure there are other alternatives, not just the jail. Now, mind you, there are some people, believe me, that need to be in jail and never need to come out. Um, I, I met people who, I don't know if they were born bad or developed that way, but I don't think there was a way to rehabilitate them. And we need to make sure that we have that tool to have the jail, but take away the, the monetary incentive. For me, uh, private prisons was like modern day slavery. It, it just was. And when you see who's in jail, it's, brown and black people. I had, if I had four different inmates of four different racial backgrounds, the white kid 
got a lesser sentence. And it could be because they were white, especially a white female, um, as opposed to the, the black child whose mom and dad may be working and not able to come to court or not able to pay the bail, and the other child's parents had the bail money. So this other kid staying in jail just because the family didn't have the money to get them out. They may not have committed any other crime ever, but they're going to be there. Now, if you've committed numerous crimes, you need to you need to show that some kind of bail, some kind of um, I need to be able to hold something over you and make sure you're going to come back for your court dates, but not for everyone. And every case needs to be looked at individually. I do not believe in getting rid of cash bail because I believe it serves a purpose, but I believe there has to be stricter guidelines on how we utilize cash bail. But if you're in jail, if you're in prison, we as society have to know those people are going to get out. So instead of just warehousing individuals, then what can we do to help them become better productive members of society when they come home? If they don't have an education going in, how do we help them get that education? If they didn't have any job skills when they went to jail or prison, then let's work with community groups and make partnerships to help people get job skills so they can be part of society. Because if we don't do that, then the only choice they have when they get out of jail may be to go back to a life of crime. And then what have we done? We felt that person, their family, and the community that they're in. Um, so I was very happy that this bill got through the second time. It had larger bipartisan support the first time. It saddened me that it didn't get the bipartisan support the second time. Um, I was happy our governor signed it. Um, and then in making sure we don't have the private prison industries, we have to put the resources we need into our state facilities to make sure that, one, our corrections officers have a safe working environment and and pay them a, a wage where you show that you're appreciative for the job that they're doing because every day that they put on their uniform, they're putting their lives on the line stepping into that jail to protect us. Um, so I could that, talk about that no, for a long that, time. That makes Sorry. a lot of sense. Something else you've been really active on is establishing a maternal mortality review panel. Um, it's an issue that uh, I'm not sure is resonating or people are aware of nationwide, but it's, an, but it's a, obviously a vitally important issue. Can you talk about your work on that uh, and trying to protect moms? I can. Um, I can. Wow. Yes. I had my own personal issues um, um, at different times with different births of my children, and I thought it was just me. Um, and after coming home last session, I met with a young lady from my district who didn't want to talk about her story. She wanted to talk about her sister's story. Her sister was in her mid-20s. She was married, um, had never been sick, got pregnant, and was having a wonderful pregnancy until about the fourth or fifth month. And then she just felt strange. But she had never been pregnant before. She, she thought it was a part of the pregnancy. And talking to her doctor, um, her doctor just kind of said, you know, it's, your body's going through changes. Just deal with it. So she dealt with it for a few more weeks. And then she was exhausted. Um, they're like, well, you're, you're pregnant. You're going to be tired. And she said, this is more than being tired. I don't, I don't know what it is. But this is more than being tired. So she battled her doctor for over three months until she passed out and almost died. 
and they had to do an emergency C-section. And they found out that she had a rare genetic disease, but no one had taken the time to listen to her and to do the research. After she gave birth to her first child, she was told, you probably should never get pregnant again. She said, okay, well, we have a healthy baby. Let's go ahead and tie my tubes or do whatever we need to do to make sure this doesn't happen again. But then she had another battle. You're just in your mid-20s. We would rather not do it now because there may be some medical thing that comes up five, 10 years down the line that can help you and then you could have more children. She said, well, my husband and I have decided that we're not going to have any more, but I need your help. Um, they refused to do it. Her doctor refused to do it. And in the process, she's pregnant again. And her doctor said, well, why didn't you just not have sex? She said, well, I am married. Yeah. That's one of the reasons I got married, so I could have sex. But she was scared to death, and she spent most of that pregnancy on bed rest because she, there was not a treatment yet for the disease that she had, and it only flares up when she's pregnant. So she left the state of Nevada after giving birth to her second child, but in the, in the interim, with her taking time off and bed rest, she lost her job. Her husband's now working twice as hard, but not bringing in the money that he was, um, with the two of them working. So they had to leave their home and move in with her parents. No one should have to do that just because you were pregnant and you had a doctor who didn't want to listen to you. And after talking to her, I talked to another mom or another mom. I talked to her grandma who lost her daughter um, because the doctors felt that she was crying wolf. And then I found myself telling my own story that I had, I had a miscarriage between each one of my pregnancies. We don't know why, but it happened. With my last daughter, I was at home on bed rest with an IV because I was losing weight. And I just couldn't keep the weight up for this baby. And I made the decision, this is going to be my last pregnancy. I just emotionally can't handle losing another child. But physically, I don't think my body can handle carrying another pregnancy full term. So I told my doctor at the end of this pregnancy, I would like to have my tubes cut and tied. He said, well, let's talk about it six weeks later. Well, why six weeks later? Why then? I'm in the hospital. I'm paying this bill now. Let's do it now. He refused. Refused. He said, at six weeks, let's talk about it when you come back for your visit and you might change your mind. I have three beautiful daughters, but I've also lost three children that I could have had. I don't want to do this again. Luckily, when I went into labor, my doctor was on vacation, <laughs> and his partner delivered the baby. And we explained, um, this is a second marriage for my husband and I. He had two children from his first marriage, and we had three children. I said, I have five children to raise. Um, I have stair steps that are going to go into college. And I've been sick, and I'm scared that I'll lose the next baby. His partner said, okay, sign here, and he cut and tied my tubes. No problem. I go home. I've never regretted the decision, but my doctor at my six-week appointment was angry with me that I violated his wishes. And I said, but it's not about you. It's about me. It's about 
my family, what my husband and I had decided. And I realized I'm a woman who's very vocal. I stand up for myself and I had a great job with great medical insurance. But what about the women who don't? And when you look across our nation, we have women dying in childbirth at higher numbers than in third world countries. Why is that? Why is that? And, and we, we have to get to the bottom of why that's happening in America, because in this country, that should not be happening. And it's happening in communities that are black and brown at higher rates than in other communities. But it's happening to women across the board. And when, when the Williams sisters, who are tennis stars, known nationwide, when one of them goes into the hospital to deliver a baby and tells a doctor, this could happen to me, and she isn't listened to, and that happened, and she almost dies. That's when I said, we really need to do something. And the way to do that is working with our medical community who stepped up and said, we got a problem. Let's deal with this. It will follow what our maternity mortality review committee would do. We'll follow if there is a, a, a death or a near death of a woman from the time that she gave birth to a year out follow what happened why did this happen where did we drop the ball was it an issue with not having insurance or having insurance but not understanding how to access everything was it rare medical conditions were there bad doctors um, was it a wonderful doctor that just missed something um, or whatever the reason was was it a domestic violence incident and and we'll be looking at that too that um, the mom just was in a situation that wasn't healthy for her or her child. So making sure that as women, we're, we're listened to, and that as Americans, those little people that we're carrying, that we're doing what's best for them. That, thank you. I, um, I hope that legislators across the country listen to both the stories of the constituents and also your story, because it's a it's an issue that is not talked about, but that uh, desperately needs to be talked about. Um, finally, I want to talk a little bit about sort of uh, what it's like day to day to be a state legislator in Nevada. Um, yeah, you get paid. Uh, a princely sum of $9,000 um, and you only have staff during the time when you're actually in session. So all the other appointments and constituent meetings and all that, it's all you by yourself. Um, how do you balance it all? How do you find time to make your way through all the bills that are dropped uh, in the, in your brief legislative session? Um, what's it, how do you manage? <laughs> well, with um, a little sleep and a lot of coffee. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, yes, during the legislative session, I have an awesome staff. Um, but once that session is over and, and that 9000 you talked about isn't annually, it's, it's for that two-year period, for your elected period, um, I have a great team of volunteers. I have a dedicated um, quote-unquote kitchen cabinet of volunteers that have been with me since the day I said I'm going to run for office. And I ask those volunteers, what, it is, what is it that you like to do? I know what I need, but that might not be what you like to do. So I let my volunteers take ownership of those issues that they, 
like. I have um, uh, one of my senior um, community members. She likes to write my thank you cards. I sign them all. I said, this is who did whatever, and this is what I want to say. She comes over. She writes out my thank you cards. We have fun together. Um, my team, we meet every first Sunday here at my home. I make dinner for them because I can't pay them. And we plan out the next month of events. And if we did not plan that out, it may not happen. Um, but it's coordinating. And my family has taken on, um, they each have a role. So um, my better half is my finance director and he's um, the chief of my campaign. Um, my children are the event organizers and my two best friends um, coordinate everything. And I have people that for our special events are, are my check-in people, but it's, it's teamwork. And when I say very little sleep, there's times I get up at 3 a.m. in the morning because there's a thought that I've had that we've got to get it down and making sure that I have the calendar in two phones and a paper calendar and my husband have it, has it on his calendar to keep us on track. Um, but I have an amazing legislative council bureau also. Although they're not assigned to me directly, um, if I need help with something, I know I can call them. If there's a constituent question that I just can't answer or I need extra research, they're there to help me um, help that constituent um, through it. But yeah, very little sleep, um, lots of coffee, um, kind of gain weight because I don't eat on a regular basis like I should, <laughs> but I'm working on that. Uh -huh. I'm working on that. But it, it is a coordinated effort. It and, really is. And a sacrifice for the family members because they give up a lot of time. And I should just say, uh, so we're sitting here in your, in your beautiful home. Uh, and your beautiful grandkids are uh, are are cruising around, <laughs> um, yeah. and uh, so it is a it is a family effort, um, and um, I, I it doesn't sound easy, but um, but I hope that the people of Nevada and all of us are uh, appropriately grateful because you're really when when you look at the legislative agenda that you're working on, um, it has both you know real impacts for the people of Nevada, but also model for, for states across this country. And so uh, I'm hopeful that, that, uh, that you can keep uh, balancing and juggling all this. Um, I love to... what I do. I really do. So I, I, I love what this position allows me to do for the families in my community. So. And are you going to keep at it? Is there, is there anything, uh, are there any other positions you're looking at or are you... I am very happy where I'm at. Um, there may be other things in the future, but I really do love what, what I have been able to do, and I love what we do in the community. We just had our, our fifth annual community barbecue on Saturday. We started five years ago with just 27 people, um, and on Saturday we had over 400 people wow. come out. and. You can have political events, but if people are on the same side of the aisle you're on, they may not come. And neighbors, when I grew up, knew everybody. If you got in trouble at, down the street, your mom knew about it before you got home, and there was no cell phones at that time. 
But we don't have that sense of community anymore. So I started this barbecue um, trying to help bring back that sense of community and giving people an opportunity to, to see each other outside their doors, but also invited in my, my colleagues that were elected officials and asked, you, will you partner with me on this? And our job is to serve the community, so they come out and they help me serve the food. But if you're a candidate running for office, people should be able to make an educated decision about who you are. So come out and, and meet the people, have a booth and talk about yourself. Let people get to know you on a personal level. But I also bring in businesses and community groups. We have health and welfare education um, out there. So if there's a resource within the community that maybe you didn't know about, you might see them at my, my barbecue. So, and there's always great food, great music, and and games for the kids so if you feed them you can lead them exactly exactly um well thank you so much for joining us on an honorable profession it's really been a pleasure to talk to you and to thank hear about you. your work here in nevada thank you thank you for having me on thanks for listening to an honorable profession please subscribe to hear more amazing leaders and keep asking your elected officials to be honorable boots road group produces podcast I'm Ryan Coonerty, and because we keep this honorable, no tax dollars were used in the making of this podcast. <laughs>